Hello, I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet, and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? In a moment, you're going to hear me chatting with an entrepreneur called Simi Lundgren. And when we met a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the radical inclusivity that she's embedded in her online beauty marketplace, UT. Simi has developed AI to take into account everything from ethnicity to medical conditions and skin types to really create truly personal beauty recommendations. Another factor she has also really considered are those issues facing those with physical disabilities in accessing many beauty products. About 15% of the world's population lives with some form of disability. That's a huge stat, isn't it? And you know, together, if we're listening with a business head on, which I'm sure we are as well as our heart, they have more than 13 trillion of annual disposable income. So it's not exactly a niche market, is it? And yet, almost half of all adults with disabilities feel totally excluded from society. And worse still, they also feel actively discriminated against. I mean, just ask the Israeli minister, who was told she couldn't attend the COP26 summit because it wasn't wheelchair accessible. The embarrassment, the thoughtlessness, really. And at a time when the dial has shifted so far in terms of our understanding of gender and sexual identity that even MS has given its staff's ID badges with their pronouns on, our awareness and championing of disability lags far behind. I realised this after talking to Simi. I'd never truly sat down before and properly thought about how opening something as simple as my lipstick might be for someone who doesn't fit the cookie-cutter of physical ability that those lipsticks are designed for. I felt a rush of embarrassment and it made me feel deeply uncomfortable. And of course, when we feel deeply uncomfortable and embarrassed, our first instincts are to push that feeling away and ignore it. But then I made myself sit with it because that's how we grow and that's how we learn. I thought about the limits of my thinking and I just put a little promise to myself to do better. Right now, we're in a world in which Gen Z are becoming of age and they're throwing out those rule books on many things. And meanwhile, those baby boomers, Generation X and even the millennials to some extent who are leading businesses now came of age at a very different cultural landscape. And I think this is one of the key reasons we've often got this disconnect as companies rush to embed inclusivity in their communications, but not deeply deeply within their business. But instead of digging into our particular generational trench of the culture wars or sticking our heads above it to make a gesture, I think this is time for us to think far more deeply about what representation means and sit with our discomfort when we come up against our own blind spots or misconceptions. Bringing the kindness economy to life isn't about us and them, it's about we and allowing ourselves to be challenged is a key part of that. This isn't about instant change. This isn't about just some communication line that shows that we care. This is about the long and sometimes painful process of creating companies that are truly inclusive. We are getting better. We are getting kinder. But it's in the space of discomfort that true growth happens. 
we must go through the pain barrier if we're going to challenge old ways of thinking. I'm Mary Portas and this is The Kindness Economy. economy is supported by Dell Technologies. Now, if the word technology brings you out in hives, fear not. You can get sound advice from a professional IT consultant using the Dell Expert Network. They provide platform agnostic solutions to your business needs. Best of all, they're trained to offer the best value for money, depending on what you need and the budgets that you have available. So, Find out more, search Dell Expert Network. And now, here's the show. For a long time, the world of beauty was stuck in the old ways of, you know, perfume counter selling, excess packaging, and those giveaway foundation samples in magazines that only ever came in that odd shade of peach. As a teenager of Nigerian heritage, Simi Lindgren felt invisible when she opened up those samples. And so she put thoughts of a career in beauty to the back of her mind when she started medical school. But thankfully, she later reconnected with her first ambition, and last year, she founded online beauty marketplace, Uti. As investor and consumer interest, as we all know, is growing in sustainable, and particularly beauty brands, UK-based Uti has just secured 500,000 in pre-seed funding. But with black female founders receiving just 0.02% of VC funding in the UK, It's only the 10th business launched by a black female founder to gain VC backing, according to its founder. Now, what's different about UT is that it uses AI to take into account everything from a shopper's skin type to facial formation to make radically inclusive recommendations. Of course, every product on the site also meets strict standards on ethics, cruelty and sustainability. This kind of attention to detail and every person's unique self is the future. And I'm delighted to welcome Simi here today to find out more about it. I'm of Nigerian heritage. So, you know, I think we naturally have this innate thinking of doing things that no one else has done before. I think there were loads of things that I encountered in my childhood, which made me realize that was just a little bit different. And I think that caused me to be where I am today. Uh, Yes, I had the academic background, but I think mostly it was trying to fit in, whether that was at boarding school and there not being many black girls or black people at school or, um, you know, just generally in my upbringing, I think it was very much like, yeah, I am a bit different. So I think that's what caused me to think about other people being quite different. Or my love of magazines, you know, seeing that some of the samples weren't quite made for me. Um, so, yeah. Do you, it's interesting that because I know, you know, thinking back to all of us as kids and bringing up three children, all we ever want to do is fit in and be the same as anyone else, really, don't we? Which actually, as we grow older, realise it's the worst thing. <laughs> because really, truthfully, you don't ever 
grow deeply mm. emotionally mm. Uh, understand that you have to create your own unique place in the world but I mean that's easy for me sitting here as a white person what was it like because what did it feel like to be a minority and especially as a young woman when you start to do beauty and express yourself through that I think for me where I really realized there weren't many of us is when I started in the workforce like in my corporate career you know I went from medical school obviously I'm not a doctor now but I went into advertising and there wasn't that many people that looked like me and then from there I went into you know matching PRs and brands with with media celebrities and influencers and again in that industry there there weren't many people in my business I think Maybe I was two. There were two of us on the sales floor at the time. So, you Who know, were black. That were black, mm. yeah. I think that's where my awakening kind mm. of started. Mm. And then you're in a fashion, beauty, luxury industry, and you're looking, you're seeing, oh, actually, there isn't that many of us in these industry. And not in the magazines, not like in the PR roles, not like anywhere really full of nice posh English girls yes middle class girls yes 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 Yes. exactly so you had this background in sales and you decided that you wanted to create a beauty company Mm. so I'm going to fast forward a little bit for all the reasons um and you, you had a conversation with a journalist of colour who made you think together that there wasn't really brands that were connecting with you yeah right you then you had to build an algorithm using AI to create customized recommendations. But even to test your algorithm, you needed to use pictures from the internet, right? You, you needed to harness data. And you realized there was great big gaps even in the data. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So um, in 2015, which was an incredibly pivotal year for AI, I was interviewed by Ate Jules, that was the journalist. And she was asking me, you know, about my career today and she was so impressed by the fact that I was so young in this in the role that I was in um but she also wanted to know like the day in her life and and um she said to me like what's your beauty like regime like and all of this and I told her about my struggles like I was finding it really difficult to find the right foundation at the time because I thought I had um combination oily skin it actually turned out I had oily dehydrated skin but that's another story um and Later on, I found out I was pregnant and I had already come on this kind of conscious beauty journey before it was even trendy. And I was buying my stuff at Whole Foods and Holland and Barrett. And I said, something's not quite working. Like, how am I going to find products that work for me? And I'm going through this new key life stage and make me feel empowered. And I wasn't feeling that. And as I said, AI was really coming to the forefront, you know, the whole kind of revolutionary aspect of AI within like motoring industry and manual labor being automated. So how can I use this AI to match people to the right beauty products? And I got to like watching lots of YouTube and reading about it and trying to code and all the rest of it. And as you're building the models, you obviously, well, not obviously, but you need to train the models on data most people use data from libraries and publicly available data like the internet. But there was massive overrepresentation of, you know, Caucasian people. And I was like, well, where are the brown people and the black people? And how am I meant to build an unbiased model when so much of the data is massively 
well, the sample data is massively biased. So I had to crowdsource data and like manually annotate that because I couldn't find it, the data that I needed, not just for skin tones, but for features. Like what does acne look like on someone who's black versus someone who's Caucasian and white? You know, it's not just red. It looks, there's different representations of it. So I needed a good, diverse balanced sample data set. Um, and, and that required crowdsourcing over many years. But here's the thing, which is interesting when we talk about coding and tech and the data people, it's all about the people who are categorizing the images as yeah. well, though, isn't it? Yeah, the classification of data. Yes, exactly. because the coders and the techie people have to label them. I mean, these, these are the people that are probably men aren't they? White yeah, men. white men. I mean, it's incredibly, <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly homogeneous. And, and that's the issue where you have that bias where you search the internet for, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing Retail Week Live and I searched person.png because someone um, in my Oxford WhatsApp group said, I just searched person.png and all that came up was men. And I was like, so I'm not a person now because I'm not a man. And you think about, you know, who's classifying this data, and that's that's where you get the bias. Um, and there's been examples of that previously where someone will type professional hairstyles for work and unprofessional hairstyles were Afro hairstyles or beautiful woman. Wow. And it would be those with Eurocentric features. So it's kind of like sample bias and observer bias because they're the person who's annotating that data and labeling those images and building these models they have their own unconscious or conscious bias. And that further is, I mean, AI isn't bias, but the person who is building. Yes, Yes. it's the viewer every bit as much as the person who's building it up. It's really important to make it clear, though, as well, that UT isn't a beauty platform for just women of color. You're about everyone and about real inclusivity, and it goes far beyond ethnicity. So. Tell me about some of the things that traditional AI doesn't recognize. For example, you've got really expansive thinking to include physical disabilities mm. or, mm. say, certain medical conditions. You know. Yeah, I mean, usually I think when people think of, you know, bias in AI, it's always linked to gender and race. Uh, but what about disability? Yeah. I mean, that's that's where I, I think when we were annotating and thinking about building a model that recognized everyone, because that's our thing, everyone needs to find the right beauty products. I was like, but what if I don't have, like if I have some sort of cranial facial difference that the model won't recognize me? You know, if I have a cleft palate, just because there is that split in the lip, does that mean that I can't be recommended a lipstick? So it was ensuring that our models did recognize those kind of cranial facial differences, whether someone's eyes are, you know, not in the traditional place Mm. or the ears are somewhere else. Those kind of landmarks are detected so that, you know, you can recognize everyone. Um, The AI can recognize everyone. I I want to reference your manifesto here because it sums up your thinking. And I, I was so struck by it because it's the kind of fresh innovative approach that's at the heart of the kindness economy and it reads I don't think you understand me I think you spend too much time telling me about you and not enough time learning about me your view of the world is out of date out of touch and out of the old playbook the world has changed and you haven't noticed but someone else has UT starts with me not with them a unique AI built to understand who I am and curated consciously sourced independent products to fit me perfectly 
never wasting a drop. You don't know who I am anymore, but Uti does. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Did you like that? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a collaboration with my kind of um, data science, machine learning lead myself, and and um, these fantastic branding and comms experts who make the. <laughs> non-succinct simi sounds much more succinct and um, craig and bridget so um yeah we yeah it's, I, it's the same with me nothing because i write it and then i get lily and cream they just add those little bits and i go and isn't that lovely because yes. that is what great working together is this collaboration and your little sense of community and the people who come together to, to lift us all up individually yes. is wonderful yes i mean it's it's i was talking yesterday at one of the big marketing um conferences and, and i was on stage i turned up and i thought I was just wandering in to do a quick talk. And they said, oh, Michelle Hussain from the Today Programme is interviewing. I wasn't quite prepared. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be interrogated. But it was actually quite fun. But I was I was talking about, you know, so many of these marketeers were sitting in the audience who really want to make change. And so many businesses that they're working for, many questions came up, were jumping on the bandwagon of, mm. we need to do diversity. Mm. We need to look at, you know, green, a sustainability and the heart, the real core, the belief, the truth, and the love of what you've written wasn't there. Were there times when you've had to go, oh my gosh, this is a bit too difficult being as pure to my vision? Yeah, there are times where, you know, it's difficult, where we're challenging ourselves. You know, it's when you're deploying AI to be inclusive and sustainable, it's incredibly tricky because our models are only as good as our data. And if the data's not there, then we have to create it. So we've had, but in those challenges, we've become a lot more innovative. You know, we're not reliant on data being there. We can create data, um, which means that we're not reliant on customer data, which means that they don't feel like their privacy is being infringed upon. Um, But then when it comes to curating brands, you know, we're challenging them to think outside of the box Inclusive formulation or ethically sourcing ingredients is not easy. And they're not big beauty. Like they, yeah. some of them can't afford to be, you know, truly like a hundred percent sustainable. Um, but they're trying, they're trying a lot. A lot harder than some of the big beauty brands. Yeah, who are putting out messages and saying they are. And I think Lots this is really washing. important to talk about. You know, you talk about the industry and how they need to get better. And the other day I had to go and do a talk up in, in Newcastle and I stayed in the hotel and there were just these plastic little bottles mm. of shampoos mm-hmm. and body lotions, those mm. tiny little one uses thrown away. And I'm like... They could be glass. What, why do they not even get the memo? Where, who are running these businesses that think mm. putting this into your... is still relevant. It's killing the planet. I'm like... They could be glass and they could be in a bottle on there. It's refillable. 100%. It could be glass and they could refill it. And that's that. And I think sometimes they look at it from a commercial perspective, like what's easy. Commercial, but killing the planet. It's like this is our thing. All of them are looking at that. And this is, it's astounding because people want the answers Mm. and actually don't realize how much hard work goes into it. You need to make those decisions that are going to really be great for the long term and not just the short term. That's the big issue, isn't it? And I think even customers, you know? Yeah, sustainability. You know, I think if everyone puts it truly at the heart of their mission and their their business objective, they all understand in the long run, it will positively impact the bottom line. 
exactly. from a commercial perspective. Um, but I think it's very surface. They respond and it's not really thought about. And we've seen that in many instances over the past 18 months where it's just a response and then it's not continued. Yeah. And it's a bit of a shame because it, it's not being digested in a real way. Um, but that's, I guess, you know, they worry about quarterly forecasts and things yeah. like that. Well, there won't be a quarterly forecast when the planet's gone and we're not here. <laughs> Bless you. And, um, you know, what would you be saying to people who are looking for those brands? I mean, obviously, you're a, you're a platform that's actually making mm. sure that they've gone through, you've gone through the due diligence and they're creating this. But what would you say to, you know, even yesterday, I was yeah. looking for an eye makeup remover mm. that was totally sustainable and wasn't in plastic. That's not easy. I'm sure you're going to tell me which one I should <laughs> We do have eye makeup remover on UT um, that is plastic free. Uh, it's, it is really tricky. You know, I had a hit list of brands that I've been curating for two and a half, three years. And now I'm not only asking for them to be sustainable and plastic free and vegan and cruelty free and all the rest of it. I'm also asking for them to be accessible, you know, to ensure that anyone who has issues with dexterity or any sort of disability should have a product that they can easily open. So, you know, oh, the, the list just gets longer and longer. That's what I mean by sometimes, isn't it? Like, oh, okay, right, okay, you haven't fit, you haven't ticked every box, so I'm just going to take you anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's, e it's easy yes. sometimes to do a shortcut. This is hard work, right? It is hard work. And we have an incredibly small team, but we have a team of advisors as well that's on a review panel. And we're testing and trying these products. But what's really great is that the founders that we have on UT – they have created a product because they needed it. You know, they thought about this, whether it's a founder who suffered from multiple sclerosis or a founder who, you know, has an endometriosis or something like that. They're thinking about these products um, holistically and that goes back to the ingredients or, you know, the packaging. Because sustainability isn't just about having products that are recyclable. I think that's so simple. Well, that's exactly it. That's what I wanted to talk to you about because I've been, you know, really taken aback sometimes doing this podcast about how terms we think we can trust are often meaningless. For mm. example, you know, free range when it yeah. comes to food. It means you could have a space the size of, you know, my dog's basket and let the chicken ever wander out there. Oh, yeah, that's free range. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Well, better buy it then. That'll do me good. Yes. Um, how useful are the terms organic and sustainable when it comes to beauty, though? I mean, a product is organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's sustainable. I think yeah. there is, you know, and is that product actually organic? I mean, organic, for something to be organic has to be 100%, right? Mm. So, you know, I think what we've done on UT is that we flag that some of our brands have organic products. That means it's 100% in the entire formulation. And some products have organic ingredients. So it's 97% or 90% or whatever else it is. And I think those terms are meaningless unless we give them context. And would you put like the percentage of what yes, they are? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Because, you know, it's kind of sometimes, and I often say this to businesses, as long as you're on the journey, you know, we're on it. We, we, none of us are 100% there yet. Exactly. And as you say, it keeps going and it keeps going. As long as we're on that, and I think it's the way of informing people. You can look at that and think, well, it's 80% or it's not. Okay, 
that's a lot better than the you know the usual crap that I've been buying that isn't this exactly which I think is it's a really good way of you tracking um, the credentials and you also have a, a three month process that brands must go through to get onto UT what does yeah. that involve Come on um, so <laughs> ever since we you know we closed our round and we received quite a bit of press. I think we have about 30, 40 brands wanting to be on UT every single week. And we're an incredibly small team. Like, so we've, we've instituted this three month review process, which means that, you know, the brands, before we've even reached out to them, we research and we do our due diligence on them. So we're looking at the formulation we're looking at the socials. We look, we buy the products. Um, we try them and it's a mock model that makes the recommendations. So not everyone will try it. Um, we'll send the products to the person that's most relevant um, for it. And in that review process, because it's skincare or hair care, we need that time because it doesn't, you can't test a product inside of a week and say it works or it doesn't. Um, for us to validate that the recommendation was correct and then also the product says what it does on 10, we need about three months. Yeah. And yeah. It's, the word trust keeps coming up, isn't mm. it, in your head? There is a level of when you look at people in the eye and just, that you know, because so much, you know, you could get all that. I mean, I'm sure you do as well. And then you might find out something in the supply chain isn't quite right or someone's not being looked after or, you know, there's been bullying in, you know, the offices. And you're like, oh, man. You know, I mean, I've been through that where you think, yeah, yeah I've met with these people. This is great. We're going to work with them. And then someone goes, oh, did you know? Um there's a level of forgiveness that we need to put into this and be open and vulnerable and honest, you know, and, and a huge part of trust that needs to, we'll always, someone will always do a little bit of a naughty, we know that, but it's, I kind of love the fact that we have to be more trusting. Yeah, I think, you know, giving that level of trust is kind. Um, but you know, we also have to express our vulnerability and we try and do that yeah. at UT as well. Like we say, we're a small team and, you know, we apologize for taking long in terms of reviewing the brands that would love to be onboarded, but having that conversation as well, yeah. that they are ethical. Um, and it's not just cruelty free, not just testing on animals, but there's no slave labor or things. Um, involved in the manufacture of the the products is is really important. Like that is, you speak founder to founder, and you're having that conversation. Like you trust when they say yeah. that that's yeah. that's not happening. Yeah. Um. But if they make a mistake or we spot that, we we yeah. it's like okay, understood. And what about these brand values? I know you're a, a small team, but how do you employ people? Mm. Uh, are you really only a team of two people now? So, yeah, so officially two people, um, but we're, we're distributed. So we're remote first business. So we'll never have an office as beautiful as yours. We're always going to have our own home offices and, and, but yeah, there's two of us and we do have a, another data scientist and someone who's doing the social media so that I'm being kind to our followers and not, they're not being. <laughs> They're not struggling to understand my posts, um, but but yeah, there's about three, four of us officially at UT, but two, you know, in the UK. That's extraordinary. And finally, the question I always um, close with: I'm thinking, how many children do you have now? I have two. That's it. How old? You yeah, know, I was that. That's it. And then the third came along. How old are they? Three and five. Yeah. Boy, girl. Yeah, my son is five, and my daughter is three. Mm-hmm. And your vision for them in the future? What's your hope? What's your hope with what we're all trying to do here in the kindness economy? You know, both in business, your industry, and your children's lives. I mean, what do you think? What's your hope? 
I do want them to lead their life with kindness, but I also want them to lead it judgment-free, to understand everyone, to challenge, but to understand or get to understand. It's not very easy to put yourself in other people's shoes. And, you know, they're half Swedish. So I think they've got the best of both worlds in understanding that they're a bit different, but actually their difference makes them quite beautiful. Um, So... I think that's the most important thing that I'd like for them is to lead a kind of judgment-free life and to always listen. Yeah, we you know, talk they, about they that. have two ears, one mouth. So to always listen is really important because they'll learn that way. And what about the planet? The reason why I wanted to create UT wasn't just to have a, a marketplace that had these wonderful brands that allowed us to reduce waste, but it was to use technology in an innovative way to allow us to reduce waste and to include everyone. When it comes to planet, I think about, you know, the future generations and wanting to leave it in a better place and what we can do as part of that. It's challenging at times, of course, but I hope that they see my journey and maybe do the opposite, (laughs) do better. (laughs) Well, be the opposite, that would be truly wonderful. Thank you, Simi, for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I think it's just interesting sitting with a mother who started a business and actually is putting those values into your children as well, I think is deeply important. That's how we will grow and create a chorus of voices and behaviours that are going to make the world a better place. Love and luck with all you do. You know I used to work for Mary's Living Giving. I know. They're going well. Yeah, I was there for a while. I just couldn't keep it up with my full-time job. You're so kind. Yeah. That's what it needed. I wanted it really interestingly. Um, that's what I set them up for, to bring in people like you. Mm. You know, when I started doing them, it was all retirees. They're the only people that gave back or gave anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I worked on a fun side, which was sourcing the designer donations, and I loved calling up, like, Seven for All Mankind or Alessandra yeah, Rich yeah, yeah, and yeah. telling them, we need this. And we were launching the Richmond store, because I, I did a little bit of work with Barnes and then at the head office for Save the Children. Ah, so, so were you in the head office or in the shops? So in the head office and the shops, I did both. And um, when we were launching the Richmond store, I remember reaching out to like Alessandra Rich and I was like, these dresses are so expensive, but will they? And, and she, that was a brand that, and I think some of the brands that we sourced for the Mary's Living and Giving stores, they really were thinking about giving back. Yeah, it's wonderful. In a real way. It was wonderful. And it was. Uh, did you see the collection that um, Tatum Jones did? They took stuff. Oh, it was beautiful. Took all excess stuff that was in the living and giving and created a whole catwalk show. You know, it doesn't take a lot to give. We all have so much excess. And I'm, yeah. thank you for putting those hours in. Those, those meant a lot. You know, when I, I, when I opened up those shops, I wanted you know, younger people to come in and go, I can give back to the world and actually make a difference because, you know. They should. They should. It was such an important time for me. And I can't remember, was I married? Maybe it was before marriage, like early 20s. I'm trying to remember. 10 years ago now. Time has flown. But, I mean, we have one in Barnes and I keep on saying that I I just love walking past and seeing those donations in there and just know that we're giving. That giving back to save children is sustainable giving have those designer donations that would literally go you know to landfill sustainable like all of these things 
it's you know only when you start to really think about it and and um it was a, a whole dream of mine and now we have 26 of them and it just makes me deeply happy but um when I look at some of the big brands burning their handbags and putting them, you know, into... They take from the planet and then they put the toxicity back into it. Mm-hmm. It's just, how are we buying from them still? This, How? How? Because we turn a blind eye and, you know... So that living and giving was just my small part of being able to say, let's, let's use this and actually give to those kids in the world who have so much less than we will ever have. It's a fantastic mission. I wish it would be for beauty as well. We could do beauty, but I can't do beauty because it's, if it's being used, but we could do beauty. But it's the packaging, it's the post-packaging, it's the afterwards and recycling or some, something like that because I think mm. there is a real way to, to give back. Because um, I couldn't accept beauty into the shops and I think I'd love to look at that. There must be some who have done recycling beauty, wasn't there? There have been. There are a couple, two businesses that are taking products back, and, that, and Lush is doing. Lush have done some fantastic work yeah, with regards to that as well. But it's, I think, people are having real trouble with you know not everything that can go into you know your compost bin or be recycled once yes. something's inside of it. And I think if we could do something for people's after they've used something. Yes, and, and you know we talked about that single use and that, that kind of waste. Oh. I think that would be so awesome because those materials can be reused somehow. We've got so much to do, Simi. Thank you for joining me. Uh, and when everyone sees how beautiful this woman is, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I need the skincare regime she's got. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. You are. Right. Thank you. Well, Simi was an inspiring woman. Everything about that conversation felt authentic and heartfelt, you know, and that is what great kindness economy companies are all about, after all. Businesses that add something to people's lives who buy from them and add to the world at large. Simi, I wish you every success. So join me next week when I will be talking to Beth Thorin, Environmental Action and Initiatives Director at Patagonia the billion-dollar company that's been leading the way in fighting climate change for 50 years.